pay attention to what you pay attention to. So lately, I've been reflecting on my practice. And although I was born in a one Buddhist family, I didn't start a formal practice until I was in my early 20s. And fast forward 20 years later, I find that I've changed in some ways, but there are still some habits that are difficult to break. So I asked myself this question, why is this the case? And I'm discovering that many aspects of my life, I'm not paying attention. So even recently, as I was driving from school back home, it occurred to me at some point that I was on automatic pilot. The drive home is very familiar to me. I do it almost every day. So I enter into this zone out mode, just going through the motions, you can drift into thinking because the path home is so familiar. And this way of existing extends in other parts of my life. And it's usually the cause of many of my mistakes, uh, the cause of me harming, of harming myself and others, of even ruining my well-being. So habits, destructive patterns in life are difficult to break if we're not paying attention. And when I reflect on paying attention, I, I realize it involves several layers. It requires a very strong intention. Some of us call this a spiritual vow or faith, sincerity and dedication and healthy skepticism or what we call an inquiry. So why one Buddhism? And one Buddhism teaches us why we need to pay attention, but also teaches us how to pay attention. And the practice can be incorporated into our day so that we can practice paying attention. And we need this more than ever. When One Buddhism was founded, Master Sutisan had that motto, saying this world, the scientific civilization, it's going to advance. And we need to balance that with a great opening of spirit. So you can see that from day to day, this material world, it's, it's advancing at such a fast pace. And the philosopher uh, George Simmel once said, the stimulation of modern life wears down the senses. It leaves us dull, indifferent, and unable to focus on what really matters. So many times we are walking in a world, just this one long roadside distraction. And so Tissan was sending us a warning that all this information that we're taking in through our senses is leading to a poverty of attention. Every business wants to claim our attention. They want us to scroll, they want us to click, they want us to swipe and eventually pay. The last thing they want you to do is to seize and watch your own mind because they thrive when our minds stray. But Master Sutasan was, well, he wasn't writing a whole critique of, about modern capitalism 
What he was doing was he was articulating what inevitably would come and he was calling for a spiritual revolution. So a journey inwards to contend with the myriad of distractions flowing towards us. So that's why we have what's called daily training. Right? This daily training is bring, you know, allows us to bring the threefold practice into everything we do and everywhere we go. And so it is in you that the most vital human resource in need of conservation and protection would be our ability to pay attention. So as human beings, we get attracted to bright, shiny objects. But we also yearn to see the world more clearly. So Sutisan so spent many years to create a teaching to show us how. And this is a practice to help us create blessings, to accumulate wisdom, to live a happier and a more meaningful life. But the first thing that he tells us, and he makes very clear, he says, it's not going to be easy. And you will have to continue this practice for a very long time. And that's why they use this word training, because it's repeat, repeat, and repeat some more. This is not education. This is training. It's not about memorizing and keeping it in your head. It's about making it your whole existence so that your inner power, your inner light manifests. And that means wherever you go, you create that paradise and you bring peace, and you build that harmonious relationship with others. So if you read the chapter on daily training, there's a word that appears in almost every sentence. This is that word heedfulness, or what I would like to call paying attention, not forgetting. And it's that practice of first seizing the mind, which means the ability to direct the mind to one particular point to prevent it from straying elsewhere and then watching the mind. So you're watching over the actions of the mind. You're like a babysitter. So you're not clinging tightly to the baby because the baby's gonna start crying. You're just watching over the baby, making sure the baby doesn't stray into any potential danger. And if it does, you just gent gently bring the baby back. So when we pay attention, we are practicing that first item of daily training and in the scriptures, it says, in all your applications, be heedful to make choices with sound thought. In other words, in all that we do, don't forget to use the mind well. Don't forget to use the mind with sound thought. But what, does, what do we mean by sound when we say sound thought? The, diction the dictionary definition defines sound as something in good condition based on valid reason or good judgment. But the sound in this context is different. And second head Dharma Master Chongsan defines sound as those discriminations that have arisen from the realm that is free from the characteristics of wholesome and unwholesome, beauty and ugliness self and others, delusion and awakening. So what he's saying is that if your thought is coming from a place of duality, that is not sound thought. 
as long as we think from a place of me versus you, beauty and ugliness, delusion and awakening, then our thought cannot be sound. That's to say, if I cling to my views of what is right and wrong, as, I, as long as I cling to my discriminations, that is not going to be sound thought. But to put these downs is not easy, right? To, because I wanna be right. In most cases, like I, you're wrong and I'm right. It's not easy, but it's not impossible. So in the Dharma words of Iruanshang, it says, once you're enlightened to the truth of this one song, circle image, we will know that the triple worlds in the 10 directions are our own property, that all things in the universe are non-dual despite their different names, that this is the nature of all the Buddhas, the enlightened masters, ordinary humans and sentient beings. So they say that the great loving kindness and great compassion of enlightened Buddhas and sages radiates more warmth and brightness than the sun. When sages and Buddhas think, when they speak, they can put down their viewpoints. They're not tied to the Dharma. They're not attached to what is good. And because they can put down their opinion, their viewpoints, their stances, when they act from this place, then whomever they're with, that person feels whole and that person feels revived. So I remember watching this video of one of uh, Sutisan's disciples who described the time when Master Sutisan was very angry, he was scolding someone. And when he would have this very loud booming voice and he would appear to be very upset to other people. But his disciples knew that he was very at peace inside, that there was no attachment and that anger was coming from loving kindness. So they would call that so that means that type of anger that doesn't transfer, right? Because there's no separation between him and his disciple. There's no transferring of that anger. So to get to this point, I mean, can you imagine that when you get angry, there's no transferring of anger to the other person. To get to that point, what do we need to do? And part of the practice is that practice of seizing the mind, watching the mind. Our habit is that when someone asks us something, it's easy just to blurt out whatever comes to our mind. Someone who practices sound thought will first pause. Pausing stops all thinking. It stops all of our preconceptions, our greed, our habits, even our knowledge. Stop. And then thinking from that pure state of mind, thinking about the situation from that place of clarity. When you combine the color red and the color yellow, yellow, what color do you get? <laughs> I saw, I heard saw someone mouthing out orange, right? When you combine red and yellow, what color do you get? Usually people say, first thing is this is orange. Yes, right? That's the answer that comes up for us. The automatic answer of common sense from general knowledge. 
that answer automatically assumes that the percentage of each color is the same. But let's just say there was more yellow than red or more red than yellow, then it's no longer orange. So someone who pauses and thinks may ask the question, well, okay, are the percentage of yellow and red the same? But this example is just to show that in many times in life, it's just, we just, we make shortcuts and that's the way the brain works. It's a shortcut and this an automatic pilot. So one of my great teachers that who teaches me about sound thought is a, a, a wonderful woman who works in our um, dormitory. She's, she cooks, she's our kitchen mommy, we call her that. And during the pandemic, I had the honor of spending a lot of time with her in the kitchen preparing meals and cleaning. And she was one person who really taught me the meaning of doing things with sound thought. So she would ask me, do you know, wash the lettuce? And I would just wash the lettuce and just place it in the plastic, the colander, no, not really thinking, just washing it. And she would walk over and she, shake, she would shake her head. And her face was like, come on, Grace, could you just stop and think? And she would teach me. She was like, well, look at the lettuce. And, you know, you place it a certain way, it, it automatically drains the water. She would teach me that and she would organize it by size. So I would begin to observe her and I when I watched her it's like whenever she would prepare a dish it wasn't just done without any thought she would she would think you know how to best plate this to, to food you know how to display it how much of the ingredients ingredients should I put in for this x number of people so she would stop and think so all of her dishes at least to me if they taste really good right they taste and it's interesting because if she, when she is unmindful, she'll let us know. Like if a dish is too salty, she would say, oh, I'm sorry, I was a bit careless today. Or if a dish was too spicy, she would point out, oh, I didn't realize I used the extra spicy red peppers today. I should, shouldn't have put in so, much, so many. But she really taught me the power of stopping thinking, not doing things just automatically. And there's a story I heard uh, um, about a Japanese botanist, an expert in studying the scientific study of plants. And he had a son in high school and his son would always observe him studying plants. So he got very curious himself. So sometimes his son would see a plant, you know, get curious about it. And he would bring the plant, he would pull the plant out and ask, go to school and ask the teacher, or if it was on his way home, he would do the same and ask his father about the plant. And then one day he brought a plant to school and he asked his teacher, he said, well, what, what plant is this? But the teacher, not an expert in, about plants, said, I'm not sure. And this boy was very disappointed. He's like, oh, my teacher doesn't even know what this plant is. So he took that plant back home and he was so confident. He said, well, my dad's a botanist. He would definitely know what this plant is. So he took the plant to his father's office. He held the plant and he asked, he said, hey, dad, what kind of plant is this? So for most of us, if we're an expert, we're an expert botanist and we see the plant, we, ought, we know what it is. The automatic thing for us to do is we would give, say to our son, oh, this is such and such a plant. Right? But this botanist, this father, 
asked his son. He said, did you ask your teacher? Yes, but my teacher didn't know what, what this plant is. Really? He goes, I'm not really sure either. And the son was shocked. This had never happened before. How can my father not even know what this plant is? So he left the room. And the father then called the school and asked to speak with that teacher. And he asked, my son asked you about a plant today, right? Yes, he did. And then that botanist then proceeded to explain to the teacher exactly what that plant was. And he told the teacher, my son is going to go tomorrow and he's going to ask you about this plant again. Please give him the answer. Let him know the answer. And then the father then called his son and he told his son, he said, I'm sure your teacher is going to give it some thought tonight and give you the answer tomorrow. So ask again, because I have no idea what this plant is. And this is another example of what we mean by sound thought. Because this father knew, he said, if I give my answer to my son right away, this child is gonna to go to school tomorrow and lose trust in that teacher. And every time that teacher, even if that teacher gives the correct answer, my son may question and doubt his teacher. So in that pause, what this father was trying to do was look at the big picture. He was also trying to look at the different relationships involved, taking into consideration what could happen in the future. And then thinking what's best for everybody involved. So one of the core practices in one Buddhism is this pausing, thinking, then making a choice, paying attention. So who's the strongest person in the world then? Who's the strongest person? Lao Tzu once said, you know, the person who gains a victory over other people is strong. That person who gains a victory over himself or herself is all powerful. So what does it mean to have victory over oneself? It's the person who is not defeated by their emotions is not defeated by their greed. It's not defeated by their habits. Not even defeated by the knowledge of what they know. The strongest person in the world is one who can win over himself or herself. Another way to express this is that battle between Dharma and Mara. Mara is tough, okay? Mara is a fighter. But Swatishan and many of the Buddhas and sages are saying, we will help you and guide you and support you so that Dharma will win in this battle. And when that battle is won, you will experience freedom. So as I reflect on my practice, yes, I identify shortcomings, things that I'm still working on, but I'm not losing hope. I'm very thankful that um, I found a practice and that, that I found a community and I have teachers and I have Dharma friends. I've made some, met some amazing people who truly you know, manifest the threefold practice and how they think and how they speak and how they act. Uh, one teacher would say to me, keep the Iron Sang in your mind 
Let it be your, your koan, your hadu, your object of faith, your standard of practice. So go inwards, realize the Buddha in your mind, practice the threefold study diligently, and outward, realize that all things, all things in the universe are all Buddhas and make that sincere Buddha offering. So his last words before he passed away, he said, we can't be two. And we should not be divided into two. We have to become one. We have to come together. And everything will be okay. So my wish for us today is that we continue to build that inner strength, that stability, so that wherever we go, we, we bring that, we're able to revive others on their path. And then I'm sure that everything will be fine. Thank you so much, everyone. <laughs>